okay, yeah. Um, so then you're gonna press here. Oh, okay. Your paws a little wide, but oh, oop. We're rolling. And we're back to Amanda Land. I mean, Six Degrees of Cats, a podcast about how cats have influenced our past, present, and future. Right now, in my dimension, it happens to be Valentine's Day. I love my baby. My baby a holiday me. about love. I think it's time to talk about my very first love, Ribbon's Bow. My little bestie. That guy would scratch at the door if he heard me crying, just to comfort me. He'd also do that when he heard me playing guitar and singing. I have no idea what that was about, but it was nice to have his audience. He lives on in my heart. Now let me just clarify here. The kind of love I'm talking about, and that you all probably feel for your pets, is what the ancient Greeks distinguish as Ilia. Friendship love. A subtype of this kind of love is Storge. The love among parents and children. That's how I'm using the word love right now. When we're talking about Valentine's Day, that kind of love is in a different category. Eros. Sexual passion. My kingdom for a kiss. The love that undergirds all genres of music, except for Christian rock, if you call that music. Just kidding. Kind of not. I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum, even when the yum is very bland. Please don't come at me, Christian rockers. So, I'm thinking Valentine's Day. Romantic, intimate forms of love. And what comes to mind, aside from fancy, expensive dinners, champagne, strawberries, chocolate, corn dogs, there's also Cupid. Chubby winged babies wielding a bow and arrow. Weirder said aloud than it is when you just look at a Hallmark card. It turns out that those naked babies are actually not Cupid. They're consorts to Roman god Cupid, or Eros, as he was known in Greece. He was a really good looking adult man. God. God man. Which, in my opinion, is a lot more age appropriate for the topic of Valentine's Day as well as anybody who is holding a bow and arrow. And yep, eros. The root of the word erotic. Lust and sexual passion were in this god's wheelhouse. Now, I'm all for historic accuracy, but I have a feeling it would be a tad less uh, family-friendly for card companies to replace those winged babies with shirtless, handsome men. Those cards exist, but we tend to give those out for different purposes. You know what would be accurate to represent the fruits of intimate passion? Of, dare I call it, friskiness? Cats. Cats on love notes. Cat valentines. Cats on a rose bouquet. Cat-shaped chocolate. I need to license this. Hear me out. I didn't start talking about the Greeks and Romans for nothing. 
In fact, I'll throw in a little about ancient Egypt in here too. They seem to have dominated the whole cat worshipping thing. Or did they? To be explored in a future episode. In the last episode, anthroarchaeologist Melinda Zeter and cat behaviorist Kristen Vitali helped us understand both where, when, and why cats were domesticated based on the best research we have now. We discussed how cats were very, very important, not only as cute little friends that cheered you up after a long day of milking cows or raising pigs and harvesting grains, but also, and especially, as fierce defenders of the harvest from rodents and other scavengers. The ability then of cats and the role of cats in taking care of the pests that are feeding off of important stored resources like grains probably became of interest to humans. Cats are very, 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 very fecund. It means fertile. They're really, really efficient kitten makers. I consulted with a couple experts on this point. My name is Sterling Trap King Davis. On Instagram, it's the original Trap King. Uh, I go by Trap King because of my nonprofit, Trap King Humane Cat Solutions, which focuses on TNR, Trap Neuter Return. My name's Amy. Um, I run a cat rescue called The Five Kittens Rescue. Our Instagram handle is The Five Kittens Rescues with an S at the end of rescue. Our goal is to stabilize and control the outdoor cat population. TNR is the humane alternative for death or euthanasia for stray and feral cat populations. I catch cats in humane traps so they're not hurt. Take them to low-cost spay-neuter vaccine clinics where they're spayed, neutered, vaccinated, and returned. Clearly, I'm talking to the right folks here. Just how fertile are cats? I've trapped a cat that was pregnant at four months old. So you think about how fast that turnaround is and how fast they can reproduce. They stop nursing at around five to six weeks, so they can get pregnant immediately after. There are peak times in the year where cats tend to get more um, frisky. We call it cuffing season. They call it kitten season. So kitten season is thus the height of the mating. And it's usually when it's warm, that's when cats are out and more active. Places where it's warm, kitten season is all year round. Like the same way as humans, we like to get married and have our weddings in, when it's warm. Cats mate when it's warm. So you think about the warm climates. If a cat is able to get pregnant at four months age as a kitten, and they're reproducing like that at that rate, all year round. Two cats can quickly become 200. The gestation period for cats is two months. An average litter is five to six kittens. So in a year that's, let's do the math. Well, they have usually around three to four litters a year, three, four times six, let's say if we're doing it on the higher end is 24 kittens. It's a lot of cats. I think I made my point there. Cats are definitely having a ton of sex. Their little cat 
synovas. So much so that the ancients found this to be divine. I had the great opportunity to consult with a researcher and writer who may be able to shed some light on this. My name's Danielle McKay. I have a master's degree in classical studies and ancient Greek. I am also a writer. I wrote articles for The Collector, the online magazine. Danielle's focus is on the Hellenistic period. What's that again? We have three main periods that we focus on in classics. We have the Archaic period, which is Homer, the writings of Homer, um, the start of pottery, still very Bronze Age, still very, um, I don't know how to say this without being offensive to ancient Greeks, <laughs> old-fashioned, <laughs> yeah. And then we have the classical period, which is, if you think of ancient Greece now, you think of the marble statues and the Parthenon and all the beauty that was created. That was all done in the classical period. That's where we had Socrates and Plato, the great leap forward when it came to philosophy and art and medicine. And then after that, the Hellenistic period, and that is marked by the birth of Alexander the Great. Alexander, one of the most successful conquerors of history, came from Macedonia, and he spread what he called Hellenism throughout Asia and North Africa into Egypt. He became very fond of, of Egypt, and he built his own little city called Alexandria. In Hellenistic times in Alexandria, everyone spoke Greek, actually. So that's what we refer to as the Hellenistic period. So we'll not only be talking about Greece, but Egypt as well. Let's dive into those myths. Where did we first hear about all of these gods and goddesses? We first look at the literature we have. Luckily, from Greece, we have so much literature the Iliad and the Odyssey from Homer being sort of the staple of um, any classicist library. That's where you first learn about the gods and the heroes and how the gods can actually manipulate life on Earth. Whereas in Egypt, we didn't even understand hieroglyphics until the translation of the Rosetta Stone. So now we have all these resources from tombs that we can actually predate what we know from uh, Greek mythology. It's an amazing pantheon that the Egyptians had, and it's way bigger than the Greek one. There is a lot of overlap in their functions and their forms and what they were praised for and revered for. While the Greek-Roman connection I'd heard before, how the Romans rebranded the Greek gods and goddesses and added their own stories into it, this Greek-Egyptian connection, while geographically obvious, I just didn't have a chance to really explore as much. We don't know for certain exactly how much of the Greek pantheon was influenced by the Egyptians, but definitely um, after Greece had become imperial and they sort of moved into um, Alexandria with Alexander the Great and the Hellenistic period, there is an insane amount of evidence that shows how 
the Greeks adopted Egyptian gods into their own pantheon, and that's when you get the advent of the god Serapis, an amalgamation of two gods from two different pantheons. Let's take a little pause. Get it? Pause. Before the break, Danielle helped us understand the connection between the Greek and Egyptian pantheons. So, cats? Well, to start in Egypt, being in Egypt, you need the Nile, you need the crops to survive. If you don't have those, then what else have you got? You're in the desert. And so when cats, after they were domesticated, um, they started playing that role of pest control. And so it kind of became a symbiotic relationship where, you know, the people were looking after the cats because the cats were looking after them. We see that in ancient Egypt with how many kitty cats they're discovering in these tombs. These cats were not buried alive. I just want to put that out there. They were given sort of their own burial, which is actually quite interesting because the common folk of Egypt weren't treated to that sort of burial. Tombs were only reserved for kings and royalty. So to see these cats getting little tombs and being buried next to sacred places, it actually shows you just the amount of reverence that the Egyptians had for cats. The time has come to talk about the original cat goddess. Bast. Yes, she's the first one that comes to mind, isn't it? She was previously, uh, much earlier, a lion-headed goddess, Thekmet. She was the daughter of Atun, or Atmun, and she was associated with war. She was a very ferocious goddess when she was a lion-headed goddess, but only later did she become associated with domestic cats when she didn't become tamed, per se, but domestic um, in her roles, where she became a goddess of fertility. She was gentler. She was the cat for the people. She was the cat for the kings. Fertility was one of her symbols. So that's how cats came to be connected to fertility. Well, of course, fertility and cats go hand in hand. Their ability to reproduce so much and on such a scale. Having cats around agriculture, it's not a hard leap to make thinking that these cats are around and we're having a fruitful crop. Perhaps these cats, with their fertility, are assisting the fertility of the earth. And if you're an ancient Egyptian, you might think, well, then there must be a goddess who is helping, who is the cat goddess. Cats. Sex. Fertility. What did the Greeks have to say about that? Danielle's really good authority here. The mother goddess of um, Greek religion, Cybele. Her name is directly translated to um, Mother of the Mountains. 
she is very much associated with lions. It's said that she has an untamed nature, and she's the lover of all the, all wild things, and she's the mistress of animals. She's depicted in a chariot drawn by lions. Dionysus is sort of the core god of my research. He's actually, out of the whole Greek pantheon, associated most with cats. Predator cats. He's got this shape-shifting aspect where he can sort of uh, turn into anything. In the stories and the myths, he's shifting into different animals, different plants. Uh, he's got a very intense connection with the wild, the celebration. He's got this untamed aspect to him. He's also known as Bacchus in Roman mythology. That's where the term Bacchanal comes from. He's associated with wine, pleasure, and parties. He was described as possessing what we might identify as a mix of both masculine and feminine traits. He's considered the most feminine of the gods. I have a quote here from Ovid's Metamorphosis. Dionysus, you Dionysus, have youth unfading, you're a boy forever. You shine the fairest in the firmament. When you lay your horns, your countenance is like a lovely girl's. Predatory cats. They are mainly associated with um, female goddesses. The panther is actually his most important animal. So he's got that femininity about him. He's also a god of fertility. Think about wine and the cultivation. He's interesting. Um, yeah, I can't stop finding things about him that makes him so unique. Love it. I'm getting a sense of why Danielle's so passionate about Dionysus. Let's reflect. From Egypt to Greece, or Greece to Egypt, to Bast, to Kitties, from Cybele to Dionysus, to pleasure, romance, and wine. Which leads to being frisky. By now, we're all on the same page about just how much sex cats are out there having. Cats. The ultimate symbol of getting it on. Cats are much more family-friendly and thematically aligned with romance, sex, and love than those winged babies. Or the actual Cupid, a.k.a. Eros, a grown adult man, half-naked, bearing a dangerous weapon. So, if this has motivated you to go revise your valentines, I will leave you, dear listener, with a romantic poem I just composed. Roses are red. Kitties are not. Cats are cuter than winged babies. I love them a lot. All right, folks. Next episode, we will be talking a bit more about cats and love. That is, how they want to be loved. 
I want to thank the wonderful researcher and lecturer Danielle McKay, TNR activist and Trap King Humane founder Sterling Trap King Davis, and Brooklyn, New York's The Five Kittens Rescue founder Amy. Sorry, I forgot to thank you too. Thanks, Binky and Snuggles. You're a constant sources of inspiration and distraction. While the opinions are my own, the research and work is theirs. Please be sure to check out their information and support them. You can find that in the show notes as well as some research that is cited to support my case. If you loved this episode, please give us a top rating and review. Thanks for coming on board. Everything is connected. Six Degrees of Cats is produced, written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Captain Kitty, a.k.a. Amanda B. Please subscribe to our mailing list by visiting tinyurl.com slash sixdegreesofcats or find us on all those social media platforms. And for my paid subscribers, you'll have access to the extra audio with more deep dives by our experts. This and all episodes are dedicated to the misunderstood, the marginalized, the resilient, and the weird. And, of course, all the cats we've loved and lost. I love cats. <laughs> I have one chubby little boy. His name is Jagger. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's such a cool guy. And, yeah, he's, he's uh, a chunky little boy. <laughs>